I'm glad to be able to be with you this morning to share from God's Word. We've been working through the book of Hebrews together, and we're up to, uh, so if you want to grab your Bible, if you have one handy, or your phone, or uh, I don't know, laptop, tablet, uh, scrolls, whatever you have with you, uh, and you want to turn to um, the book of Hebrews, uh, we're going to be starting in chapter 6, um, but it's actually going to take us a little while before we get to that, because we need to set up a good amount of um, kind of Old Testament background to be able to understand uh, what's going on in this verse. So we're going to be going way back and then working our way up until we feel like we have the stuff that we know, need to know, so that we're able uh, to talk about the verse. Um, so before we go for it, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group of friends and family that we can be here together this morning. I thank you that um, even in the midst of vacations and camps and travel and all kinds of things, that we were able to be here to be together. I pray that we would encourage one another this morning in the presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and that we would uh, be able to enjoy one another as friends and family. And I pray for anyone this morning who is um, struggling, who needs a word of uh, hope, or encouragement, I pray that they would be able to find it, whether it's from the worship music or from the prayer or from the uh, sermon or from just the fellowship and the people that are here. I pray that we would all be ready to be friendly and encouragers and uh, to one another. Lord, I just pray uh, that you'd help me to share the word accurately this morning and help us all to be ready to listen uh, to what you have to say to us from the scriptures. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so keep a fin- uh, Hebrews chapter 6, keep your finger in there, maybe your, your pinky, all right? And then we're going to turn way back to the beginning to get started. Uh, this is in Genesis um, chapter 12. I'm just going to read it, so you don't have to turn to it. It's a very sh- uh, short piece. But in Genesis, we read about a man named Abram, who was born as an idolater, a worshiper of idols. According to Jewish tradition, his family were actually idol makers, and he heard the word of God that uh, gave him a blessing and an instruction. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says to this man, Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this man, Abram, who, nothing special about him, probably just like everyone else, plenty of reasons not for God to bless him. But God says these words of blessing to him. So Abram hears this, responds in faith, and goes, leaves where he was living, and goes to the promised land, along with his nephew Lot, and with all of their families and their slaves. And at a certain point, Abram and Lot, uh, when they got to the promised land, decided to go their separate ways. Lot chose the area that looked best to him, which was the plain around the Jordan River, around the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham went the other way into the land of Canaan. Shortly after this, a war broke out among the cities of the valley. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were conquered by neighboring cities, 
and all the people in them and all the treasure were taken for the loot of war and for slaves. Lot, his people, and all his possessions were taken away as part of the spoils of war. When Abram heard about this, he gathered his own army of 318 men from his household, and they went to war against those who had conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. He defeated them and recovered not only Lot, but all the people who had been taken and all the treasures and possessions that had been stolen. This was the first war in the Bible. After this, a mysterious event occurred. And we're going to look at it. This is in Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20. This mysterious event. So the war, Lot is rescued. Abraham is standing there in front of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's just defeated their enemies. And all the treasure is right there. Picture it in a pile next to him. And his hands and his clothes are still dirty from the fighting. All right. And then verse 17 of Genesis 14. After Abram returned from defeating Kurdo Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. So, it's a clear story, right? Makes sense. Uh, every, and I'm sure you guys read this usually for your devotions once a week or so. Uh, normal uh, story. Um, but I want to make a few important points. This, um, this man, Melchizedek, um, he, he was a king, but unlike the other kings in the story, he was not part of the war. He was the king of Salem, which is the city that would later become Jerusalem, the king of Shalom, the king of peace. If, any, uh, if, if me or any of this stuff blows away, somebody please get it. Um, he was a priest of the true God, the same God that Abraham worshipped. He completely predated and had no relation to the later priests that would come in the Old Testament after, during and after the time of Moses. In fact, he wasn't Hebrew at all, not part of Abram's family. Um, he ministered to Abram with this mysterious use of bread and wine, almost like he gave him some kind of communion. And Abram gave a tithe to him, a tenth of all the stuff that had been won in the fighting. So in some ways, it almost seems like Abram stepped out of his time and place. You know, he stepped out of this ancient war, and he stepped into the doors of a Christian worship service. You can imagine Abram with his hands and clothes and feet still unclean from the battle, and suddenly a Christian priest from Jerusalem shows up, holds a service, serves communion, and passes the plate for the offering. Right? It's kind of what happens in this story. And it's very unusual. Um, so this is some of the context that we need to get up into Hebrews. Uh, Abram had this promise from God. God had made an oath to him that he would give him descendants and the promised land and that the whole earth would be blessed through him. And he had an encounter with this unusual priest, Melchizedek, 
king of Salem, and priest of the Most High God. So now, uh, if we read forward in the Bible from there, uh, what we start to see is how this promise that God made to Abram starts to work out. And if we jump forward about 500 years, 14 generations, we come to King David, one of the children of Abram, his descendants. He was the second king of Israel. And the promises that were made to Abram are still in effect, and David can see them working around him. They have become a nation. They live in the very land that was promised to Abram. And the working out of God's oath to Abram is still a work in progress that's happening around them. So then, to this king, King David, God makes another oath. This is in 2 Kings chapter 7. Um, and we're going to read the whole chapter because this is very important um, and it's very powerful. This is 2 Kings chapter 7. After the king, it's King David, after he was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. We're now in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you've brought me this far? As if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? 
For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. And there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. So that's quite a passage, but this is, but but look at what is happening. David, after his wars and fighting for decades, fleeing for his life, is finally here he is in his house, and he's king. And he looks and he says, God, I'm going to, why should I be living in a house and you be living in a tent? I want to build a temple. God says, no, that's not what I asked for. But what I do have for you is an eternal promise that I am going to establish a throne for your descendants that will last forever and that I will bless the whole world through. So God makes this promise. And David is completely blown away by this promise because he recognizes that it is purely the goodness and generosity of God to make such a promise to him, who has no merit to have earned any of it. He knows that if God has spoken it, it will be. And he's in awe of that. So there's one last verse to look at. In response to this promise, David writes a song. And this is Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, David is writing both poetry and prophecy, about the promise that God has given to him. And notice that I'm emphasizing that it's poetry and prophecy. These two things are, in the Bible, pretty much always related. And I think we'd be wise to realize that although poetry and prophecy are not the exact same thing, they are close enough that we should look for one in the other. In fact, poetry and prophecy are such close cousins that it is wise whenever you encounter great poetry or a beautiful song that comforts you or that challenges you, uh, that, that you should look for the prophetic that may be in it. And similarly, when reading prophecy, to understand that God isn't just speaking, he's singing a song. Um, well, in the psalm, in this psalm, 110, David contemplates this promise that God made to him. And he starts thinking about this descendant of his, and this eternal throne. And what does this person have to be like to fulfill all the promises that God has made? Guided by the Spirit, David's prophetic imagination makes a connection back to an old story that you guys are all familiar with. Um, So let's just see what it says. Psalm 110, I'm just going to read the first half of it. 
of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord. That's the first line of it. The Lord says to my Lord. Already a weird line, right? The Lord says to the Lord. Well, David, um, what he meant by this, Jesus referenced this verse many times uh, to talk about the Messiah, talk about himself, understanding that even though David was the king, this descendant of his, he referred to him as with this divine title of the Lord. Um, so he's saying, the Lord says to his Messiah, to his eternal king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Oh, Melchizedek? That guy? From the, the weird random guy that just showed up to give Abraham communion and take the offering on a, uh, after the war, way back in Genesis? You are, he's David, talking about his promised king descendant who he recognizes as his lord, right? So he's the king, but he's also a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right? We'll just go with it. A little weird verse, but we'll just go with it because it's a very important verse to the author of Hebrews. Interestingly, this is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus refers to this psalm often. Um, but a particularly strange thing is also in there, um, where David refers to his future king in his line as his Lord. But he also says that he's a priest and a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right. So now we're up to Hebrews chapter 6 and 7. So at the end of Hebrews chapter 6, the author starts by reminding his readers about God's promise to Abraham, like we just talked about. And that because it is impossible for God to lie, and on top of that, God swore an oath, we have double confidence that this promise will be fulfilled that was made to Abram. On the basis of this, the author writes these beautiful verses in chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. He says, We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Oh, there's Melchizedek again. He keeps showing up, right? See, the author of Hebrews is looking back to Psalm 110, recognizing Jesus in David's prophecy, a priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. And because of this, he says we should have firm and secure hope, an anchor for our souls. Why firm and secure? Because God promised it. Actually, not just because God promised it. God spoke it, and God doesn't lie. But then God also, on top of that, made an oath of it. And then these promises are being fulfilled in Jesus, who is a new kind of priest, different than the priests they were used to. And with a new kind of priest, a whole new system, different than the system that they were used to. In chapter 7, he starts by recounting the story of Abram and Melchizedek. 
And he's building an argument for why Melchizedek was a superior priest than the priests that you could go and find at the temple, the ones that came from Moses and Aaron. He points out the idea that Abram, who was the patriarch over Moses and Aaron, and therefore patriarch over all those priests, well, he gave his tithe to Melchizedek, uh, and recognizing him as having a greater authority. He also points out all the things that were done by and required by the priest in the line of Moses had a big problem. You know, all the things that they did, all the sacrifices, the offerings, the, all the special holidays, all the rituals, all the ceremonies. The author of Hebrews points out that there was a big problem with all that stuff. The problem is it didn't work. All those offerings, sacrifices, holy days, ceremonies, for all those centuries, but no righteousness came from that. Jesus, on the other hand, he did not have the proper ancestry to be a priest in the line of Aaron, but he had a different and superior claim to being the high priest, the one that we read about in Psalm 110 that King David prophesied, a priest like Melchizedek, who was a descendant of David and a priest and king forever. The author of Hebrews strengthens his argument by pointing out that unlike the priests they were used to, Jesus had actual power. He rose from the dead to eternal life, and he has the power to produce actual righteousness in people. In verse 16, he refers to Jesus as one who has become a priest. This is chapter 7, verse 16. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. He points out we have a new kind of high priest and therefore a new law. In verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Verse 18 and 19, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. That's, an, uh, that's something for the Bible to say about the Bible, right? He's talking about the former regulations. He says they are set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And looking back to the promise made to David and remembered in Psalm 110, the author of Hebrews points out that just like the promises made to Abraham, these promises about Jesus were also affirmed with an oath made by God. The point is, which is better, to be a priest because of your family tree, even though nothing your ancestors did actually accomplished anything, or to be a priest based on the sworn promise made by God and a demonstration of his power through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. In verses 18 to 22, we see this. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he, Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant, better than the old one that is being replaced. But the old covenant was a big deal, right? This is what everything was based on for so long. And what is our guarantee that the new one is better? Jesus is the guarantee of that. Through the oaths sworn by God saying so, and the demonstration 
that his priestly ministry is eternal and effective, that it makes a difference and actually works. Finally, the author notes another big downside of the old priests as compared to Jesus. They all died, unlike Jesus who lives forever. If you look at chapter 7, verses 23 to 28. Now there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Okay, I know that was a lot, but I want to um, close with a few thoughts to try to make this more personal to us. Because for a lot of, I don't know about for you guys, for me, the whole idea of thinking about having a priest, like, it just doesn't have a real deep connection to me. Um, you know, I've never been in a situation where I felt like I had a priest who was making offerings on my behalf or who was making rulings on the law on my behalf. Um, but it is a very important point out of the scriptures, so I want to try to bridge that gap a little bit so that we can connect to it. Um, you know, what, what were the priests to the people? They were the leaders who decided everything in regard to their duty before God and their regulations and laws. They were the ones who spoke to God for the people. And they, you know, they were, if you needed rescue, if you needed help, if you needed someone to make a judgment for you, that's who you went to. Um, you know, they, they had power that the kings did not have, the power to make sacrifices and offerings the power to rule on the law of Moses. Um, so it was a really important thing. I mean, look at the role that the priests played in Jesus's life, right? Who, when he was arrested and when all of the trial and everything was going on, it was the priests that were running the show, running, you know, all of that. I mean, they had to appeal to Pontius Pilate because the Romans were in control, but they were the ones driving the whole situation. Um, so the priests were the leaders and teachers and judges of the people. Um, so when we say that Jesus is the priest, don't think of that as being just a religious service. That means the high priest, the judge, the leader, and the teacher of the people. Um, so first thing to take away from this, Jesus is your priest. And that should be a source of hope and strength to you. Why should it give hope? Your priest is not like other priests. Your leader is not like other leaders. They can only offer rituals, words, laws, um, and a show. But they have no power. Jesus, on the other hand, is powerful and mighty to save, lives eternally, is totally holy, but is a friend of sinners. Anywhere that he goes... All right, let me go back to this. He's a friend of sinners. And think about this. The old priests, they went into the Holy of Holies once a year, and only one of them. 
Wherever Jesus goes, he brings the Holy of Holies with him because he's the one who made it holy in the first place by his presence. So if Jesus is in our midst, we are in the Holy of Holies. And, and we're more in it than any priest ever was. And he loves us with a kind of love that no other priest ever imagined. A love that wills to suffer for the benefit of the beloved. The only sacrifice Jesus offers is himself. And that sacrifice is not just to, just to turn away wrath, like we're just dodging a bullet. No, that, this sacrifice is to wash us and heal us and to anoint us as children in the household of God. That's why Jesus being our priest should make us very hopeful, fill us with hope. So why should Jesus being our priest give us strength? The old priests had a law, and when the law was broken, they could punish. That's it. That's all they had to offer. Jesus has a new law, but they are implemented completely differently. Instead of, good boy, here's a gold star, bad boy, wacky with a stick. Instead, Jesus understands that the real problem is in my heart. And he has given me a new heart. That now, instead of being in rebellion against righteousness, hungers for righteousness. And day by day, as we step down Jesus' path, that heart beats stronger and stronger. Joy grows as we have opportunity to walk in this new path, to experience this new life. And it's not just words. It's faith. I'm not who I used to be. And it gives me such hope to know that I'm going to be different next year than I am now. And in 10 years, I'm going to be even more different. That is good news to me. I hope it's good news to you that you will be different in the future because Jesus has the power and strength to change a rebellious heart into a heart that loves goodness and righteousness. Um, Jesus is strong and mighty to change a heart and to teach it to be more like him. Now, not many of us are in a position where we're considering, do I want to follow Jesus or do I want to follow Jewish priests? Now, if any of you are in that position, I'm glad you're here because this really is the sermon series for you. Um, and it's exactly what you need. But you are in a position where you're going to have to choose between who is your leader, teacher, and judge. And, that, and there are options. And there are many who are competing against Jesus. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about some warnings of teachers who are out there and that we should be watching out for and things to stay away from because they're trying to draw us away from our true high priest. So beware of those that are not teaching exactly the same thing that Jesus taught. Even if they call themselves Christian, they are not reliable teachers. There are those who say to you that you should be afraid. That is the opposite of what Jesus taught. There are those who say you should hate some group of people. That's the opposite of what Jesus taught. Or that you're better than some bad people. That's the opposite of what Jesus taught. These teachings are not Christian, even if they say they are. Even if the person who is saying it says they're Christian, those teachings are anti-Christian. There we go. And uh, so beware of those who teach the opposite 
of what Jesus taught and follow our true eternal priest who teaches real righteousness and has the power to bring it about. Beware also of those who don't do what Jesus did, those who want to be lifted up and exalted in themselves as opposed to wanting to serve, those who divide people rather than bringing them together. Beware of leaders and teachers who don't pray. Those who rely on clever words rather than on the real power of God. Beware those who, instead of helping people find their way to God, are driving people away from God. The way to God is clear. Repentance through faith in Jesus Christ. And the door is wide open because Jesus broke the power of death. Beware of anyone who tries to close the door that Jesus opened, especially if they're trying to point out some particular sin or some special reason why that person can't come to God. This is the opposite of what Jesus did and what he still does. Beware of those who are tying burdens onto people. Beware those who care more about others' sin than about their own repentance. Beware of leaders and teachers who are trying to get rich and sell stuff off of Jesus' name. This is evil. Couple last thoughts. Beware of abusers, wolves who are trying to get into the sheep uh, pasture. We have seen in recent years all too many instances where it has been revealed that churches of all kinds were places where abuse occurred. And often there's a particular lie that went with this. And that lie is that if the abuse was confronted or exposed, then it would some way hinder the mission or the gospel or the work that was being done. Um, this is a lie. It's from Satan, and it must be absolutely rejected. No truth can harm God. Right? We should rest surely on that. No speaking of the truth can harm God. God never wants anyone to lie or cover up anything in order to protect him or his mission. God's work will be accomplished because he is powerful and real, not because someone did something to help him along. The question is, will we be walking in the light and following his commandments? Or will we fight against him and be on the losing side? To cover up any abuse, to let it go on, or to allow anyone to be victimized is to be on the side of Satan, no matter what is being preached or what the apparent result is. Praise the Lord, I am not aware of any abuse or problems of this type in our church. But this is widespread enough in our world, in our community, in our culture, that we need to be actively against it um, and vigilant to stand against it to make sure that it never occurs in our church and that we stop it in any way that we can whenever we have the opportunity. Um, last one. Beware of putting your faith in the laws or lawmakers or judges who are the priests of our time. We have had the major Supreme Court rulings this week that Adam talked about very well earlier that will have a big effect on our country. And we should all pray and work to improve our laws and to bring them as close as we can to pointing towards righteousness. Good laws are good, but they are powerless to save. A law can create a rule and can assign a punishment, but it can't change the desire to kill into the desire to love and cherish. In Hebrews, we see it clearly. All those priests, 
All those laws, what did they accomplish? Nothing. Jesus Christ showed the way, lived it out, taught it, died, and rose eternally to show that it is real. Only he can change a heart. Only he can spring up a wellspring out of love, of love, out of a dry desert of apathy, or can turn enemies into family. He can do, but Jesus can do those things, and he is doing them. That's why we have hope. Not because we have a law, but because we have a Savior who can change a heart. Good laws are good, and we should want them. But beware of the priests out there, the leaders out there, who put the focus on law as opposed to on Jesus, our priest and king. Mighty to save, friend of sinners, healer of the brokenhearted. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much that you are our priest forever and that you have the power to actually accomplish what needs to be done and that you're doing it. And Lord, this brings us great joy to see it at work. Each one of us can just think about our own lives and our own friends and family and see how much you've accomplished already. And Lord, to think of what you're going to do as you keep going, it's just amazing that we have this promise and that we can just be a part of it at all. Lord, I pray that you would renew our faith, turn our eyes directly to you as our source of hope, as our leader, as our priest. Lord, thank you for the, that you do not hold yourself separate from us, but that you come close to us even in our sin and bring us into the holiest of holy places. I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to work in our church. Keep us safe from any uh, of these warnings that we talked about and instead strengthen us deeply rooted into the vine of your love and your spirit so that your work can be accomplished in us and that our hearts can truly be changed to conform to you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.